The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Asia for this Tuesday, June 20th in Hong Kong, Monday, June 19th in New York. And coming up today... Airbus secures the biggest aircraft order in aviation history from India's largest airline. However, industry veterans are warning the market is showing signs of overheating. KKR shuffles its Asia private equity team. And Chinese banks may cut their prime lending rates for the first time since August 2022. Blinken meets with Xi, opening lines of communication, but major differences remain. China's number two man meeting with European leaders in tense search for a submersible that is headed to the Titanic wreckage. I'm Ed Baxter with Global News. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, the business news you need to start your day in just one 15-minute podcast. Available on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good morning. I'm Brian Curtis. And I'm Doug Krisner. Here are the stories we're following today. As Doug mentioned, Airbus has secured the largest aircraft order in aviation history from India's biggest airline. More from Bloomberg Scott Carr. Airbus will sell 500 A320 planes to India's dominant airline, Indigo. Top executives from both companies announced the sale at the Paris Air Show. The sale brings Indigo's order backlog close to 1,000 planes. Indian carriers have been stocking up on aircraft to handle increasing volumes in the world's fastest-growing major aviation market. Indigo already has a local market share of 61%. Now the airline expects to double in size and scale by the end of the decade with plans to increase operations in Central Asia. Airbus had predicted in June that aviation's center of gravity will shift toward Asia, with China and India driving growth. Scott Carr, Bloomberg Daybreak Asia. Well, despite record orders for aircraft, aviation industry veterans are warning of a market with signs of overheating. Airlines have been struggling to meet demand since travelers stormed back to the skies following the pandemic. Here's Steve Udverhezi, the co-founder of Air Lease. I think right now there's a herd mentality yep. of ordering just to protect future slots. The question is, will all of those aircraft deliver as currently contracted? Will many of them get deferred or airlines will opt out of some of the aircraft or swap with other buyers? Yep. Meantime, the CEO of Qatar Airways, Akbar Al-Bakr, said that airlines are flooding the market with a huge number of aircraft, and he thinks the aviation supply chain may not return to 2019 levels for at least the next couple of years. Bakr also saying that airfares will remain high for some time. Brian? 
Four U.S. lawmakers will travel to Detroit this week. They'll press automakers Ford and GM to cut their reliance on supplies from China. The lawmakers are Republicans Mike Gallagher and John Mullinar, and Democrats Raja Krishnamoorthy and Haley Stevens. We hear they'll raise concerns about Ford's partnership with Chinese auto battery manufacturer CATL, and they're expected to argue that cattle is closely tied to the Chinese Communist Party and has received Chinese government subsidies that allow it to undercut American firms. This is a stance that angered China and has contributed to recent strains with the United States. The American legislators plan to meet Ford CEO Jim Farley and GM CEO Mary Barra, along with other officials tomorrow. Well, the investment firm KKR has overhauled its Asia-Pacific private equity team on the heels of a $15 billion capital raise. We have more from Bloomberg's Joanne Wong in Hong Kong. Meng Liu, KKR's Asia-Pacific head, will become executive chairman for the region to focus more on strategy. Hiro Hirano will move on from his role as co-head of private equity to become deputy executive chairman. Several other executives changed roles as well. These are among some of the most sweeping changes for global investment firms in Asia in recent years. It comes just two years after KKR raised its biggest ever buyout fund in the region. Deal-making has sputtered of late, partly due to strained U.S.-China relations. And private Equity investors have been finding it more difficult to generate decent returns. In Hong Kong, I'm Joanne Wong, Bloomberg Daybreak Asia. Meantime, Chinese banks will likely cut their benchmark lending rates today for the first time since August of 2022. Bloomberg's Bonnie Ao has more from Hong Kong. China's weaker than expected macro data may prompt more monetary easing. A 10 basis point cut in the medium term lending facility rate last week implies the prime rates will be cut a similar amount. Consensus is that lenders will trim the one-year loan prime rate to 3.55% from 3.65%. And the five-year quote is expected to be cut by a wider margin, 15 basis points to 4.15%. The five-year is the reference rate for mortgage loans. A deeper cut there is expected to give some extra support to the struggling property market. In Hong Kong, I'm Bonnie Ao, Bloomberg Daybreak Asia. So we had a, a big down day yesterday in Asia, uh, Doug, and it, we continued into Europe. Uh, but the one thing about Asian markets is that they closed before Anthony Blinken had his meeting with Xi Jinping. And since that went reasonably well, at least there was no acrimony in that, we may get a little bit of a bump. But you have to say that all of a sudden, the overall mood in global markets is not particularly strong. I think it's fair to say there may have been just a little disappointment that we didn't get some strong indication coming out of the state council meeting on what uh, stimulus would look like. And you and I were talking earlier, Brian, about uh, Premier Li Chiang being on his first official visit to Germany and France this week. Maybe that suggests that an announcement on stimulus may not occur until he gets back to China. That might be the case, uh, but investors had been expecting some broad moves, and uh, having not gotten it, uh, we did see a little bit of a sell-off yesterday. The CSI 300 down eight-tenths of a percent, and even more in Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Tech Index tumbled 1.3 percent. Uh, but today's another day. We might see uh, a little bit of movement. The LPR cut today that we just told you about is largely priced into markets, but one thing that may not be, and may be on the positive side, Warren Buffett raising a stake in Japanese trading houses. Yeah. 
have five of them uh, to an average of over eight and a half percent. A lot of this has to do with the fact that he's been very positive on Japan. The combination of high commodity prices and a weaker yen really kind of underscoring um, his thesis as it relates to these trading firms. That said, there was an analyst over at uh, TND Asset Management saying the upside from here is probably limited since the market has already factored in much uh, in the way of Buffett's thinking. Yeah, that's one of the issues, I think, for global markets. Uh, we talked about the mood, not exactly souring, but just not not quite as strong as maybe what we've seen. We had such a big rally in the second quarter that you can imagine some investors just feel a little bit nervous about how sustainable that could be. And so investors and traders both going back and forth be- between the kind of excitement of the rally and concern that it could be exhausted. It's something we can put to Belita Ong coming up in a few moments, chairman of Dalton Investments. Now it's time for global news. Well, the U.S.-China dialogue went well enough that Secretary of State Anthony Blinken did meet with President Xi Jinping. And as mentioned, no real acrimony coming out of that. Ed Baxter has the story from the San Francisco 960 Newsroom. Ed? Yeah, that's exactly right, Brian. So communication lanes are more open, but there remain differences and friction, though, as well. Both were stated in the news briefings afterwards. I came to Beijing to strengthen high-level channels of communication, to make clear our positions and intentions in areas of disagreement, and to explore areas where we might work together when our interests align on shared transnational challenges. And we did all of that. And she threw a translator. The Chinese side has made our position clear, and the two sides have agreed to follow through with the common understandings President Biden and I had reached in Bali. Now, those differences uh, come in common defense, actually. That means investing in our own capacities and in secure, resilient supply chains pushing for level playing fields for our workers and our companies, defending against harmful trade practices, and protecting our critical technologies so that they aren't used against us. And an admonishing from Xi. State-to-state interactions should always be based on mutual respect and sincerity. Now, the elephant in the room, Taiwan, Blinken saying the U.S. will respect the peaceful relations of the Taiwan Strait and will abide by the Taiwan Relations Act, making sure Taiwan has the ability to defend itself. She, in a statement, says the U.S. says uh, has to respect its internal affairs and not interfere. Both did say that the meetings were very positive. So where are we? Well, Bloomberg's Rosalind Chen says they can claim success at this point if things just plainly don't get worse. It's not really about a fundamental long-term reset in a relationship between the world's two biggest economies. Fundamentally, there are too many friction points between them where you see competition, again, in the economic space, the business space, the tech space, the cyberspace, the military space. It's simply an off-ramp is is to stop a deterioration from here. Now, President Biden, on his way to California for fundraising, said, talking about Biden, he did a hell of a job. We're on the right trail here. I'm hoping that over the next uh, several months, uh, I'll be meeting with Xi again and uh, talking about legitimate differences we have, but also how there's areas we can get along. So for now, it appears current mission accomplished.
China's number two official, Li Xiong, on his first overseas trip since becoming premier, held talks in Berlin yesterday with German President Frank-Walter Steinmeier, two goals to prevent ties with Europe from deteriorating from the German side, get China to use influence on Russia regarding Ukraine. Submersible that takes tourists to the Titanic shipwreck is missing off the North American coast in the Atlantic. Five people on board. Rear Admiral John Mauger says the U.S. Coast Guard is working with Canadian forces and working by air and ground to first find it. Right now we're focused on locating the vessel, but at the same time, if we find this vessel uh, in the water, then we will have to uh, effect some sort of rescue. The Coast Guard estimates it has between 70 and 96 hours of emergency oxygen left, so wow. Global News powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in over 120 countries in San Francisco. I'm Ed Baxter, and this is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Rashad Salamat in Hong Kong. Joining us now is Belita Ong, chairman of Dalton Investments. Belita, we talked a little bit about the global mood, uh, maybe having eased back a little bit. We might get a little bump in Asia because of the Blinken-Xi meetings, but then there's the frustrations over nothing coming out of the state council. And then also that Warren Buffett uh, news emerges that he's raised his stake in Japan. Which of those is sort of front of mind this morning here on a Tuesday in Asia? Um, we, we take a long-term view towards investing, and um, Japan is no different, and we invest one company at a time. So for us, it's just great to see uh, Japan finally getting noticed uh, as a market where you can find good bargains uh, on good companies, uh, and where finally, after decades, uh, you're seeing some potential of sustainable growth because of an increase in wages. So I would say that of all the different factors you've mentioned, uh, Warren Buffett's uh, um, faith or um, view that there are attractive opportunities in Japan is something that's most akin to ours. So we're very pleased to see the changes uh, that have taken place on the part of foreign investors uh, getting back into Japan in a very big way uh, and finally paying attention to uh, the change in corporate governance that has led to different, much better behavior on the part of company managements towards shareholders. But it has been some time coming, but I think it's the new boss of the TSX who's kind of cemented this. Uh, but it also comes with, some have said to us, um, a change of mentality. Do you have any idea where that's come from? Yes, definitely. Uh, we engage with our uh, company managements regularly. And there's been a marked change in the way they view um, our suggestions, proposals for how they might return more capital to shareholders. 
they don't need it. So as, as is well known, there's an excessive amount of uh, cash capital on the balance sheets of many companies that operate um, profitably and don't need that sort of capital. Um, and they just never seem to be much of a reason for them to want to do the right thing by shareholders until now. The Tokyo Stock Exchange reorganization um, and the uh, possible um, uh, you know, downgrading if they don't meet certain performance standards uh, has woken these managements up. And I think also, maybe more so, the feeling that they need to do the right thing by shareholders for the good of the country. Because the fact is, Japan, as we all know, also is an old country where many people live off uh, pensions uh, and where the largest shareholder now is the Japanese government through the government pension plan uh, and also the BOJ. So doing the right thing by shareholders actually benefits the government and in turn the pensioners and uh, investors in the economy. So it's, uh, I think, finally sort of, you know, sunk into some extent that doing the right thing for shareholders is actually the right thing for the country as a whole. And Japan Okay, let me counter that. Very, let me counter that with an argument. Um, Warren Buffett is also famous for not liking bonds too much because he's worried about the, the currency um, possibility of instability. Uh, now, if the yen, if by chance the Bank of Japan decides to change policy and and um, you know get a little tighter here, you could see a reversal in the yen. And and goodness forbid, if you were to get a repatriation of yen back to the country, that might uh, strengthen the yen, and it could have an impact on the equity market. Could it not, especially after such a big rally year uh, to date. That's true. It's uh, for for most investors, uh, the yen seems to be self hedging. When the market goes up, the yen goes down, and so forth. But the if you take a step back and look at where the yen is compared to where it was uh, at its peak at what was it seventy seven or seventy eight yen to the dollar, and that was in gosh I can't remember how long ago that was, but that was um, you know in the twenty elevens I think it was. Um, the the yen has appreciated by almost 50%. I think it's 45% or something like that. And that makes Japanese companies very competitive right now. So there's plenty of room for the yen to appreciate, satisfy um, investors, foreign investors who are investing in the Japanese market now and still keep Japan competitive. So I don't see that the problem is immediate and huge, rather that it takes a long time for currency moves to take place. You know, I, I remember when the yen was 350 to the dollar. And it took, gosh, that took decades to correct. But it does correct. It takes a very long time, and it's a, um, you know, it's a very long path. And, and with this particular yen level, I think it's very much in the interest of um, the Japanese government to keep it competitive so that they can stimulate growth. Belita, I want to just broaden it out away from Japan, and perhaps just uh, to do that, let's have a look at, uh, at you know, perhaps a thematic approach to uh, investing, and gives a sense of how perhaps these uh, these four Ds. Um, perhaps shape the way that you look at companies and the way you look in the in the long term here. I'm talking about um, decarbonization, demography, decoupling, and digitization. Those are good 4Ds. I mean, they're, they're all uh, top of mind for us when we invest. Um, we have a strong uh, ESG policy. Every company we look at, uh, we take an independent look through a ESG uh, lens. And the reason is not just because we are, um, you know, desirous of looking good to investors. The, the reality is that companies that think about the long term think about sustainability issues. They treat their um, employees well, and they look for ways to um, make sure that their supply chains and their uh, customers uh, are also sustainable. So 
them and, and they treat their shareholders well. So for us, those things uh, are just part and parcel of being good good managers of a company. Mm. Um, in terms of demography, India clearly is the star. It has a very young population. Long term, I would say we probably find India to be the most compelling place to invest if you're looking at decades out. You know, Japan for now is just incredibly attractive to us because it's so cheap. But long term, India has a lot of the right bones for sustained multi-decade growth. So you've got young, young population, very, very low uh, per capita GDP, making it extremely successful, huge scale, so that there's a chance to supplant China in some uh, manufacturing capacities um, yeah, let, and let uh, me, well run. Let me use that as a, as a prong to get to China. Uh, what's more important, organic growth coming back or we get this big round of stimulus or better U.S.-China relations? I think China very much wants to become uh, much more um, independent of the rest of the world. And the economy is so large that it can get there. Um, the question is how, and uh, it can't happen right away. It's too, it's too much of an adjustment for any uh, country to take on. Um, and so, you know, I would expect that for the near term, the, the, the hurdles facing China will be um, detrimental to their growth, so particularly the uh, property sector. You can't reverse um, you know, the impact of um, decades of prosperity because of rising real estate prices uh, and expect a smooth transition to a lower growth path without some pain to the population, which I think is why uh, Xi Jinping had talked about recently uh, that the Chinese people should prepare for, um, you know, in his, in his words, I suppose, um, sort of uh, discrimination, if you like, or you know, bad behavior by uh, foreigners um, yeah. that might get in the way of their, their growth. So I think he's preparing the Chinese people for some you know, time ahead of more difficulty, economic yeah. difficulty. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, your morning brief on the stories making news from Hong Kong to Singapore and Wall Street. Look for us on your podcast feed every day on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each day on Bloomberg 1130 in New York, Bloomberg 991 in Washington, Bloomberg 1061 in Boston, and Bloomberg 960 in San Francisco. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Plus, listen coast to coast on the Bloomberg Business app, Sirius XM Channel 119, the iHeartRadio app, and on Bloomberg.com. I'm Brian Curtis. And I'm Doug Krisner. Join us again tomorrow for all the news you need to start your day right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Asia. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.